Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and today I'm joined not by Bishop Todd, but by the Reverend Sandy Richter, who's going to co-host today's episode. Uh, Sandy's been on the podcast before. If you are a regular listener, she shared during our series on prophetic lament during Lent. And Sandy is also at the beginning stages of planting a church called Christ Our Peace in Oak Park, Illinois. So anyway, that's a little bit about Sandy. Sandy, uh, great to have you here with us today. Thank you. I'm excited. What What is it, maybe just by way of just a brief introduction to you and uh, your task right now, you are planting a church in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, I don't, it doesn't seem like an ideal situation. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really crazy. Um, <laughs> we started meeting as a core team in January of 2020. Did you? So wow. we met twice Gosh. in person and then we went all online. Um, <laughs> but I have to say a really wonderful older gentleman in our church um, called us early on and said, I want you to know this is not an accident. This is how God does things. He said, just think about that. Just think about how God loves to use what seems like the things that could not work and then to turn them into really beautiful things. And he said, I want you to hold that before you as you go forward. So it was really- What a great word. Right? What a great word. And that's really been uh, so important to who we are as a people. We've really felt called to um, consider we're all white. We've really considered like- Um, dismantling white supremacy is one of the main calls for us as a church. And so that posture of humility, that posture of like, God, we're just going to be, we're going to be small. We're going to be open. We're going to, we're just going to attend to you and see what you have for us um, has been really cool. And what's neat is that I would say now we're a little church. I mean, we're 20 something people, but we're functioning as a little Mm. church, um, both Mm. in the sense of community um, also in the sense of worship, but then in really looking around us and seeing how we can be, as Bishop Todd would say, the cooperative friends of Jesus as a community. So awesome. it's, it's been rich. Good, yeah. good. Well, I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate hearing about uh, all of that. And man, just hearing stories like that of uh, people giving you encouraging words, it feels encouraging to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sort of felt that, I just took that one right in, mm. right into my church. I was Love like, it. okay, I'll take it. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, Well, Sandy, you're not the guest on our podcast today. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren is. If uh, you're paying attention to the titles, you'll know that. But um, Sandy, I I wanted to ask you to co-host this interview, which we've already recorded. We just got done with it. Um, I wanted to ask you to co-host this because I noticed on social media that you were planning to read Tish's book that we're talking about in this interview, Mm -hmm. Prayer in the Night, during Eastertide. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. I want to interview Tish about this book. And so why don't I bring Sandy on to, to, to do that interview since you're, you seem uh, motivated and wanted mm. to read the book anyway. Uh, so anyway, I'm really thankful that we uh, got a chance to do that. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the interview, do you have any reflections on it? Um, just this uh, interview, this conversation we just had with Tish. Yeah, I will say that um, someone gave it to me during Lent and said it would be a great Lenten read. And mm. I was already reading Prophetic Lament and focused on some other things. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to read it in Eastertide. Yeah. And as you'll see in the interview, um, 
I'm so glad because I think what it gave me is this, this sense that, okay, I'm not really feeling ready for Eastertide because mm-hmm. there's still a lot of hard stuff happening. Mm-hmm. And Compline acknowledges that and Tish mm-hmm. really acknowledges that and creates mm-hmm. a space for that. So that's my takeaway um, is mm-hmm. that the, there is always that gift within our faith of being honest about where we're at and that's where God meets us. Yeah. I agree. It was, it was a, a rich interview, and it's a great book. Uh, it's a really yeah. rich book as well, and so I heartily commend it uh, to our listeners. Um, a brief word about Tish before we get into the interview. Um, we are interviewing today the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren. She is a priest in the ACNA. She's the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. Uh, she has worked in ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries as an associate rector, and she's also worked with addicts and those in poverty through various <clears throat> churches and nonprofit organizations. Currently, and very recently, she is writer-in-residence at Resurrection South Austin in uh, Austin, Texas, and she's a monthly columnist with Christianity Today. Her articles and essays have appeared in various publications such as the New York Times, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Comment Magazine, etc. Uh, she's a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. She lives with her husband and three children in Austin, Texas, as of a few months ago, I think, moved back. And she's joining us today to talk about her new book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. You ready to get into it, Sandy? Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. All right, here we go. Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, welcome to the C4SO podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're also here with the Reverend Sandy Richter. Welcome back to the C4SO podcast. You've been on here before. Yeah, thank you. It's good to yeah. be here. Yeah. So I'm glad to have uh, you here with us um, to kind of as a co-host and a co-interviewer today. Um, why don't we dive right in? I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I'll ask the first question, uh, and then Sandy, you can kind of take it from here. Uh, but Tish, I wondered if um, you could share a bit of the uh, the genesis of this book uh, that we're talking about today, a bit of how it got started. I know it, it's not just an academic interest. You know, you're not like, you know, I wonder, you, you're not just writing academically about Compline and, and these prayers, but this was birthed out of a, a pretty significant uh, season for you. I wonder if you could just share briefly about where the book got birthed. Yeah. So I wrote Prayer in the Night super reluctantly. I wasn't sure this was even the book I wanted to write, but I had, it came out of my own life, out of my own story. And the book kind of begins in 2017, which was just a hard year for my family. We, um, in a hard year for me personally, we moved across the country from, um, Austin, Texas, which is where I'm from my hometown to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to work at a church there, an Anglican church in Diocese of Pittsburgh. And um, a week after we got there, my dad, back in Texas, uh, died in the middle of the night unexpectedly or suddenly, at least. He'd been actually sick for a long time. So it wasn't totally unexpected, but uh, it was, we thought we had more time with him. I actually had a plane ticket booked for to go back for his birthday 
um, the next week and had and ended up using it to go back for his funeral. Um, wow. And so, uh, so it was sort of it was, it was unexpected. It was sudden. Um, mm-hmm. And then we, to our great surprise, got pregnant. Um, found out we were pregnant right after the day after his funeral, actually. And uh, wow. I, uh, I know it was this crazy time of joy and deep sorrow and all sort of mixed because we had yeah. really wanted another child. And um, but then three weeks later, I and I we lost that baby at, in a miscarriage and it was mm. kind of medically dramatic. And so my, mm. um, the, the book actually kind of begins in yeah. the emergency room, yeah. Yeah. uh, having to, I had to have surgery after the miscarriage and I, and it kind of this sort of crisis medical situation where I was bleeding profusely. I, uh, asked to pray Compline, mm. um, which, I say in the book, and it's true that it's not that's not normal even for me. I'm a priest married to a priest, but we don't we don't just go around praying compliment demanding liturgical offices (laughs) (laughs) in in various situations in our life. Um, But uh, and then we um, uh, got pregnant again and and then had a sort of a long hard pregnancy where I was on bed rest and uh and that summer in in July we lost our second um baby he was a it was second trimester mm-hmm. miscarriage and he it was a boy he was a uh, a mm-hmm. son and so we um yeah so we had a kind of a little memorial service for him after that a funeral i guess and we but uh um after that so that's about it was about six months of just grief and loss and deep loneliness um adjustment to a new place and also just a lot of loss and so after that i was just spiritually exhausted i was worn out and i found it really difficult to pray and Mm. this whole time i'm 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 working at a church. I'm a associate mm-hmm. rector, uh, but struggling, right, um, to pray and struggling with these questions uh, about theodicy, about how can God be good and all powerful mm-hmm. and bad things still happen in the world. And um, I had the I had theological answers. I mean, I mm-hmm. at this point I was ordained. I'd been through seminary. I'd of course read about this, but they they were just so emotionally unsatisfying in the moment (laughs) and it felt like I had so many more questions and they were uh it was just it was kind of spiritually it was an exhausting time and and a pretty empty time and I felt um there's a a Damien Gerardo song that he says I have questions that lead to more questions and it felt Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. listening to that at the time and thinking that's exactly how I feel I just feel like there's too many. There's too many questions to ask of God, um, and so uh, in the middle of this, I, um, well, I, I, I didn't start writing the book until about mm, probably a year later, over a year. It was in kind of late 2018, um, and so I, uh, I, I. Um, when I got around to this book, 
first of all, I was, I was moving on. I was trying, I was healing and it had been a year and I wanted to sort of like skip ahead. I wanted to go and, okay, let's like focus on joy. I don't have to go back and write about, you know, the pain of this. I don't have to go back and face these questions and sit in it. I was sort of, I was ready. Why can't I write a book on like, I don't know, the victorious Christian life. Um, (laughs) but I, um, felt really led back to this, um, as not, I mean, certainly not as an academic, um, exploration. It was really out of my own life. I mean, none of my, I'm not an academic. Uh, I, I, I don't have a PhD. So a lot of my own writing is from wrestling with my own life and, and theology in, in my own church and in the pews. And, um, I'm a, I'm much more of a practical theologian. So I wanted, I was deep, I wanted to, um, the idea that came to me is sort of writing this book around this one prayer in Compline, the Keep Watch, Dear Lord Prayer. And once that idea came to me, I just, it just kind of wouldn't go away. It just, Mm. it was, I've said this elsewhere, but it really did feel like this cat that you feed one time and it just keeps coming back (laughs) and I couldn't get rid of it. And, um, it, it wasn't so much that I wanted to write a a book on Compline, um, or an apologetic for Compline. It was that the thing that really drew me was the question of how do you trust God and how do you continue this is the practical question of this. How do you continue to walk in the way of Jesus when you are full of questions and uncertainty mm-hmm. and sorrow and anxiety and fear? And um, so this question of trust became really central to me. What does it mean to trust God? Mm-hmm. And But I didn't know how to get into that question well because I didn't mm-hmm. want it to be here's six ways you trust God. I didn't, I didn't want it to be sort of easy answers or kind of, um, or, or a formula because that just seems so, um, foreign to the actual, to, to the actuality of how we follow Jesus in relationship and in the messiness of all of that. And, um, and so, uh, coming this for me, I, kind of re um uh relearned is too strong but i i came i was able to continue praying i kind of came back to prayer through um through the received prayers of the church and through compline specifically when i couldn't pray it felt like anything else and when i didn't have words uh the prayers of compline ended up being this kind of tether um mm-hmm. partly because they they were so honest about the brokenness of things. They were they they acknowledged death and fragility and danger, and I needed that. I needed something that wasn't going to tell me to sort of look on the bright side. And Compline mm-hmm. doesn't. They're dark. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a for nighttime, and there's a mm-hmm. there is this kind of stark vulnerability and and yet gentleness in them that. Yeah. That and, and during this time, night itself, nighttime became really hard for me. I would be busy in the day and then at, at night there's sort of this empty open space where where grief and mm-hmm. and questions and loss would kind of roar mm-hmm. and so these prayers allowed me to over time i mean certainly i resisted yeah. this but over time had to 
to have space and silence and to kind of come back into prayer. Mm. So I really wanted to get into this question of trust and how do we trust God and theodicy. Um, but I wanted some way to do that that was um, not formulaic, that would allow me to explore different ideas, but that also it, it felt to me like this prayer became like a dive line or a, 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 um, they call it a distancing line in scuba diving. Like if a, if a scuba diver wants to go to a deep, dark place, mm. they don't just jump in. They tether themselves to a place closer to the surface and they use a guideline to guide themselves into these like, um, you know, underwater caves or places Mm -hmm. that are, that are murky. And then it, it can get, it's how they don't get lost in the question, in in the, in the darkness of all of that. And I Mm -hmm. felt like I didn't want to, I I didn't want it to be simple and too sparkly, but I also didn't want to just get lost in the quagmire of my own, Mm doubt and fears and questions. And so this, this prayer felt like it provided this kind of guideline where I could go in this scuba distancing line where I could kind of dive down into these deep questions. Um, but, but it would, it, it would tether me to something real and true and strong that could kind of hold me in the midst of that. So, um, that's how I ended up, uh, writing this book is really out of my own struggle of, I, I, this book came, this idea came to me when I was on a writing, a uh, little writing retreat to do a different book that was much more focused on, on doctrine, um, mm. explicitly. And this book certainly has a lot of doctrine in it, but it was on the creeds, which maybe someday I'll still write that book. I, I, I haven't written it, but I, um, I felt like, a part of the reason that maybe God brought me to this book is that I was kind of using theology to avoid the actual central question that I was asking, which is how do you trust God? And so um, this book ended up for me being a, being a way that God kind of sat me down and made, made me face my own questions and gave me a structure and a form that allowed me to do that. Um, So that's kind of how this book came to be. Hey everyone, it's time once again for the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight, where we highlight the specific ministry that we're praying for this week in our diocesan cycle of prayer. And this week we're praying for Christ Church in Kansas City, which is led by Reverend Patrick Wildman. And he has joined us to share briefly about what's going on right now and how we can pray specifically for them. Patrick, welcome to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Thank you, Ben. It's good to be with you. Yes. Uh, Patrick, what's one thing that you're encouraged by right now? One thing I'm encouraged by right now. Well, the last 14 months uh, have given our church and and really every church many opportunities to divide. Mm. You know, to get mad at yeah. one another and divide. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The pandemic and everything that it has entailed, mm. uh, the election, discussions yes. about race, you know, on and on. Yes. Many things for people to get angry at one another and divide, and yet mm-hmm. for the most part. Christchurch, we've really stayed together. We've stayed unified. And so that's that's how I'd answer that question. What yeah. has really encouraged me, the character of this community, Christchurch, is what I'm encouraged by right now, that people Wonderful. have really, I think, really tried to love one another. Yeah, 
That's great. Testament to yeah. God's goodness and presence uh, in your midst right now. That's great. Absolutely. Uh, how about a challenge that you guys are facing right now, though? Uh, well, the challenge is, is along the same lines, because as you know, <laughs> you can never relax and say, oh, well, everything's great. Um, mm. You know, that's been the fool's gold of this whole pandemic is thinking, oh, it's almost over. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> no yeah. it's not. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so as the as the restrictions begin to be relaxed and more yeah. people are vaccinated, uh, that just means there's more people who are really ready to kind of get on with life as normal. While there are also a sizable number of people in our church that are much more cautious. Yes. And so, even though I just talked about unity, I think mm-hmm. we're at another point where it would be very easy for the church community to divide. Yes. And I think it's really a significant leadership challenge. So, um, yeah. yes, uh, yeah, we're feeling that as well right now. So, yeah. um, in light of all of this, uh, Patrick, how can we pray for you and pray for Christ Church right now? Well, um, I think you know the things I just talked about are whether you can pray for the church. Uh, mm-hmm. Just pray that uh, we would be able to be wise in how we lead, and that we would yeah. be able to stay unified. As for me. I think, uh, you know, along with many others, I'm just tired. I'm tired yeah. mentally yeah. and emotionally. The last 14 months have been a been the largest mental health crisis that our country has ever faced, we think. Um, mm-hmm. The fear, anxiety, isolation has had serious repercussions on people. And yeah. this has meant, for me, it's meant more leadership demands on me, both at home and at church. And it's been a long haul really uh, that has taken its toll and uh, there's still a long way to go. Um, So I guess I would say, pray that the Holy spirit would bring me life and energy. And um, I'm really hopeful that I'll have some time this summer to kind of unplug and, and be refreshed because I really haven't had that in, in some time you know, yeah. a more extended period of time. So, yeah. Um, okay. I'm, 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 I need it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Patrick, thanks so much for sharing that with us, sharing uh, vulnerably uh, about where you're at and uh, about where the church is at. And thanks for joining us today. Um, listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Christ church or to contribute to their work, just check out the link in the show notes. We'll see you next time, Patrick. Have a great day. Peace. One of the things, one of the images that will stick with me for a long time after this is the tether and or the dive line. That's not something I'm familiar with, but the tether um, as something that you can hold on to. That's just a really powerful image. And I was thinking as as you were saying that about um, the man that Jesus interacts with, and he says something like, do you believe? And the man responds, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. And it feels like to me, grabbing the tether is sort of that, okay, I believe, but then holding on to the tether and trusting that it's going to take you or hoping (laughs) that it's going to take you where it needs to take you um, is that help my unbelief. And Mm -hmm. I was just thinking how, how it seems like to me that helped you to really enter into, like you said, that deeper place of, of questions. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to how, 
that is particularly scary for people who have grown up in the church and kind of have trusted in things like doctrine or theology to get them through. Um, can you speak just more directly to people who might be thinking, okay, I do have all these questions and those just seem really overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just maybe you could describe a little bit more of the beginning of that process for you, what that looked like or what you would, and some encouragement along the way that you would give to people in that place. Yeah. I, it's funny because this is completely out of my personal experience. Um, and so I know a lot of folks won't identify, but, but at least so far that question times of doubting, um, or questioning haven't been really scary to me. Um, Mm. partly because I, man, I think by nature, I'm kind of, by nature, I'm kind of a doubter and kind of a questioner. Mm. And this has been affirmed (laughs) by friends and my husband, um, that I'm super analytical. And so I sort of just, uh, Mm. I just keep asking questions. And, uh, and so, um, I mean, I, I first of all, I absolutely love the the verse. I believe help my unbelief, and I say mm. in the book, I think that every prayer I've ever prayed is in part from that. <laughs> and I, I think that's really the posture of all of the Christian life for all of mm. us. Uh, of course, there's times of great ardor where you you it just Jesus seems so real, like God mm. feels like you might just physically walk in the room at any given point and you it there's these times where god just seems so close but that's few i mean that is not my typical experience of the world um and so uh um yeah sorry i'm sorry to disappoint readers if they think (laughs) that's what i experience all the time but it's not and so um for me i mean even part of me being staying like remaining a Christian has been mm. that I, I, I'm enough of a doubter that I doubt my doubts. Mm. So the doubts, the questions don't seem more real to me than mm. certainty or, or doctrine or any, anyone else's experience of um, certainty or truth. So I, mm. I, I doubt my doubts and doubt my doubt, my doubts, my doubt, you know, you can, you can keep doing it to the point where at some point you go, okay, well, I, you just, you have to, be, you have to decide what to believe. And mm. I don't think yeah. this is purely like a leap in the dark. I, I don't think this is, there's like no evidence for this. I think the evidence is in the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Um, but I believe everything I believe flows from actually believing in, in a resurrected mm. savior because, um, because everything else seems to, to kind of wax and wane. And, um, mm. and even then, I mean, I love, so, you know, I believe credo, that's, we begin the Nicene Creed with that. We, mm-hmm. we believe in God, the father, and that's very good. Very good. But some part, I always sort of wish that when we, when we finished, you know, the, in the, we, um, in the life of the world to come and we finished the creed that we would say, you know, help my unbelief because we, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. we proclaim this every week and we proclaim it. We, I feel like we have to proclaim it every week cause we're reminding ourselves, this is mm-hmm. what we believe. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Martin Luther said every week I preach the same sermon because every week my congregation forgets. And I think Mm -hmm. it's the same, right? We say this creed over and over again as a way to say help our unbelief. And and yet we do believe, you know, I'm not for Mm -hmm. kind of the fetishizing of, of doubt, which also there's part, mm. particularly in ex-evangelical circles that can sort of doubt can become a, a virtue or a, a the kind of um, we can sort of uh, um, f- focus on it or, or, um, or um, glorify it. And I, yeah. I don't, I don't think that's helpful. I, I think doubts um, just part of the human experience, of course, like, like, like anxiety is, or like, mm-hmm. um, like, um, I don't know, insomnia, like struggle to mm-hmm. sleep. Like, it's yeah, just like yeah. something that all of us walk through. But, right. um, so where were, this is, I've gotten lost in the question. I'm sorry, but, uh, <laughs> that's great. So, <laughs> um, so, oh, the thing about if it being scary. So for me, uh, I think doctrine is unavoidable. I say this in the book, but mm-hmm. when, when it all, when it hits the fan, when things are really bad, we, we end up, and honestly on an ordinary Wednesday morning, mm-hmm. we live our lives. We default by the story. We, we believe about what, who, who God is, and yeah. what people are for mm-hmm. and what the world is. So we all live by a doctrine Mm-hmm. Even your atheist friend has is, has doctrines that they believe, mm-hmm. first principles that can't be proven, mm-hmm. things that we um, that we rely on, that we build our life around, that we answer the question of meaning about. Yeah. Um, and um, but I also think, as I said, I I I really do see questions as this is a very normal part of the Christian life and. Yeah. Um, and now the ubiquitous part of the Christian life, just mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, for whatever reason, and I, I'm not quite sure why. Like that's just been kind of part of my. That's just put, that's part of my personality and part of my vibe. So I've never been like yeah. deeply afraid of that. I do think I want to have two caveats to that. Part of the reason I haven't been afraid of that though is because I have, I have never like the, the whole language around deconstruction that's used now and deconstruction on the internet. And and that I'm saying people on the internet talk about that a lot. I'm not sure that I've deconstructed. I I don't, I don't even honestly know what that means unless it's like you, you leave the faith. I I haven't, I feel like questions and and thinking through things is, is a very normal part of the Christian life mm-hmm. and also really, really like beautiful part of the Christian life. How would we grow mm-hmm. otherwise? And, um, and as I said, I'm pretty analytical. So like wrestling with things and questioning things is just sort of part, I mean, to a ridiculous extent, like to, <laughs> it was like when I was engaged to my husband and everybody else is just like, I love you. And I'm, I love, I'm, a, I, I said, I love you. But then I would have these questions like, what does it mean? What is love? How do we say, what does it mean to say we love someone? You know, these like, um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure this is, it's a no, yeah, I, I overthink things is what I'm mm. saying. So, um, but I think if I was in a place where I felt like if I questioned, then I have to deconstruct 
that would be very intimidating to me or very mm-hmm. scary. But mm-hmm. um, I think what I think people are over focused on the concept of deconstruction now in the sense that sort of um, asking questions about how do you trust God in darkness or how, how do you know scripture is true or how do we live our lives or well, what about all the sin in the church? These mm-hmm. aren't, this doesn't mean we deconstruct. These are questions Christians have asked for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of dialogue partners within our own tradition and faith about, about yeah. this. And so, mm-hmm. um, so some of that is, is I, I grew up in a time where, I mean, I grew up in the nineties. So I grew up in a time and where it felt like, questioning doesn't equal deconstruction or you don't have to like re-identify as a evangelical to ask these kind of questions. Um, but then I also think, um, that the thing that concerns me about some of the deconstruction and that sort of stuff now is it just feels so isolated. It feels like when, so Mm. questions don't scare me. What concerns me and scares me is when people ask questions, um, not in conversation with an embodied community and not in conversation with the global historic church, right? That it's Mm -hmm. the conversation is all kind of either on Twitter or internal um, uh, or, uh, and, and really divorced from, from the longer conversation that the church has had. And, and so it becomes, Mm -hmm. um, so of course then it, it becomes, a little myopic, like completely mm-hmm. focused on, on our own moment in history and, and mm-hmm. the way our questions brush against that. So, um, I think what I'm saying is that, um, I maybe, maybe, I, I, I mean, maybe some people listening would say, well, I just haven't questioned enough. And that, and that, that could be, I mean, there could be doubt ahead that I haven't faced, but I also think I've always sort of felt a lot of freedom to ask these questions and um and I've and I've had a community around me that allowed me to wrestle with this and and to wrestle with it well and, and I have a husband that has a PhD in religious history and and Christian history in particular and um you know I can I can barely come up with a question that hasn't been addressed in the eighth century or the sixth century or the fourth century. So getting kind of, I, I have an embarrassment of riches that I can, mm. I can kind of wrestle with these things and, um, and have the, you know, five different books thrown at me from different fathers mm, <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. of people who have dealt with this. So that, that's some, that's some of, I, this is doubts kind of always been sort of a normal part of my Christian life, I would mm. say. I think all of what you said was so helpful. Um, and as you were talking, I was thinking one of the things that you brought out in the book that I thought was absolutely brilliant was in the chapter on weeping, when you talked about how a lot of times there's a lot of emotion underneath the, it might mm-hmm. present as anger, it might present as, I mean, as we were just talking about this as anxiety, but underneath that, there are deeper, there's grief. And also you you really got to, especially at the end, there's what do we think about who God is, right? So you can wrestle with questions with the problem of suffering, but then it sounds like what you, your experience was that on an emotional level, you needed to have a different kind of wrestling or 
uh, or walking into those hard and dark spaces. So I would also just really love to hear you, especially as a pastor, what are ways that you've helped people or or friends or whomever um, to get to those deeper emotional places where they're, where they're wrestling um, to kind of help them to, to reconnect with maybe their image of God or maybe mm-hmm. trauma that's coming up in the midst of it, or, you know, just to help them if they feel stuck in their, in their weeping and their grief and their, or in their questions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've been like wildly successful at this in, the, in as a pastor, but um, so I'm not, I'm not saying this as an expert, but I think, um, I do think creating spaces where people can be really honest about the pain Mm. that they're experiencing and not have to just to literally sit in it and not have to spiritualize it. So not have to say, but I know that God is still good. Or I know that, um, you know, to qualify it. And it's not Mm -hmm. that, of course, maybe, maybe they, I mean, I hope they will get to the point of saying, I know that God is still good. But the psalmist was allowed to just say, mm-hmm. how long, O oh Lord, where are you? You know, they and very famously, you know, Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only friend. And that's where it ends. <laughs> yeah. So thanks be to God, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so um, allowing people to sort of be there where they're at without qualifying it. And it's very hard. I mean... This is a hard thing for a pastor. It's been hard for me because there is some times where you need to push back a little bit and say, mm. yes, all of that is true. And Jesus has overcome the world. Mm. And Jesus has risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then there's times you need to not and you need to just keep your mouth mm-hmm. shut. And so figuring that out is hard, mm-hmm. I think. It's really hard. Um, and particularly because we're in a, a time that we're there from some fundamentalist communities that kind of allow no doubt. And then yeah. there are from some reaction reacting to fundamentalist communities that allow no assertion of truth or allow yeah. no certainty. And both seem uh, dishonest to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, part of, yeah. so I, I said, I, I've always questioned, but I also feel like I have had, not only do I believe the resurrection is a historic event, but I have, I part of probably my own even story is that very young, and when I was fourteen, I had a, a pretty profound spiritual experience mm. of God's presence that um, I could doubt, and I and and I have, uh, and yet again I doubt my doubts about that because there was something that <laughs> seemed very real and very true and very right uh more more real than what i experience you know right now certainly talking to you on zoom it's more real than zoom um so so i think we have to let um there there we have to allow room for people to maybe we really can know god maybe we really can know truth um and so it's hard being a pastor in this is what I'm saying is because we can't just say, well, we don't want to be like the fundamentalists. So we're going to just like, let, you know, let people be wherever they're at. But, but we also can't say, um, you know, we, we, we don't want to be too squishy. So like everyone has to have constant faith 
because mm-hmm. that's not real. I, I feel like the Psalms are really instructive here because yeah. mm-hmm. there's this constant sort of doubting, where are you wrestling? And then there's these moments in the Psalms that says, but my soul will trust in you. Mm-hmm. But I will, you know, in the end of Habakkuk, it's like when the, the, if the fig tree withers, if everything falls apart, yet I will trust mm-hmm. in you. There's this, um, and so this yet and this but, this turning to God is also something that we want to call people to as, mm-hmm. um, because, it, because that's God, God is the source of all life. So mm-hmm. having to work through this, I mean, this is why pastors need such deep, deep spiritual discernment is that we can't mm-hmm. react to our understanding of what's in the culture. We can't just sort of respond to doubt in reaction to fundamentalism or in reaction to exvangelicalism or in reaction to liberalism or whatever. We have to actually respond in the spirit to the actual person in front of us and to where they're at. And that's really, really, really hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So hard. So we need, we need the spirit constantly, but I think um, the Psalms are instructive uh, I think the church calendar is incredibly helpful mm-hmm. here because mm-hmm. it leaves space for lament. Yeah. Yeah. It leaves yeah. space to really look at the darkness, look in space to look at the sin in the world, but then also says, okay, it's time to celebrate. And right. for people like me, you know, Christmas is harder than Advent in the, in the sense of that, okay, well, I have to, I actually yeah. do have to believe that the light has come into the world and darkness could not overcome it. Mm-hmm. And so having to kind of make that shift is really helpful, but also we don't stay in Christmas all year, right? Mm-hmm. We may, we have space to really acknowledge how broken things are and that we do live in the already and not yet. So that is very helpful. And then frankly, just, I mean, this is one of the reasons Anglican piety is so lovely is uh, I came, I was in the PCA for a while and I, I love, I still am like somewhat reformed and I love the PCA and have a lot of dear friends there, but, uh, but, um, and, and, you know, there's certainly reformed catechisms that have just been so helpful to my faith. But there's something so lovely that uh, about Anglican piety, and that, that some things are clearly defined, but there's just a lot left yeah. to mystery. Everything with our Eucharist, um, mm-hmm. so much about um, kind of a relationship between death and life, like the yeah. um, what it, the saints, mm-hmm. the saints eternal, the saints departed, and the saints presently. And there's just like a lot of mystery that we leave, and I that's been. Mystery is a very helpful category because it's true. It's real. If Mm -hmm. we're talking about God, we're not going to be able to nail it all down. Mm. Um, So mystery kind of in its best doesn't lead us to like squishy, lukewarm, being tepid about all things doctrinal. Mm -hmm. It leads us to humility, to epistemic humility that we can say very clearly there are things we would die on the hill about that are real, that are clear in scripture. And then, um, but there's a lot that we say, you know, we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think find that very freeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, I have another question that sort of pivots in a different direction. Uh, the chapter 
on tending the sick. Um, I really appreciated how you talked about sickness as a practicing of death, a practicing of our being finite and being small, and that that can be a way to really live into a freedom when we can acknowledge our limitations. And of course, as you said at the beginning of the book, you were writing it just realizing that the pandemic was about to unfold and so much was going to happen in the next year and a half before it would come out or year. So since the pandemic, how have you seen the church especially respond to this kind of embodied limitation Mm -hmm. in ways that have led to freedom or in ways that maybe haven't led to freedom? And how, with that, how can we go forward into this new phase that we're looking at um, accepting the gift, if I can say that. I mean, the pandemic has also been awful, so I, I don't want to be mistaken <laughs> um, about that at all. But but that gift of limitation, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to hear what you. I'm sure I'm sure you've had thoughts about that. Yeah, gosh, it's. I mean, it's hard to speak on like the whole American church's response sure. to this because it's been so divided, right? It's been so politicized mm-hmm. in yeah. ways that have been really, really grievous to me. And that's been one of the interesting things is, yeah, I wrote the whole, I wrote the entire book before the pandemic. So it doesn't really deal with the pandemic, but I was, I would, I ended it right. I kind of closed the book, final, final edit. You, I do a ton of editing and, and so Mm. kind of final editing, um, ended in March, 2020. So it was mm. as things were, sh- I mean, really just the first few weeks of shutdown. Um, and so I have, I kind of have an assumption in the book in ways that people tend to avoid mortality. We don't, we yeah. don't really deal with ourselves as mortal and um, we, we don't, we try not to think about it. You know, we yeah. fill our lives up with busyness and consumption and we don't, often think about mortality. So um, I think that's shifted some because this has Mm. been so in our faces that all of us, it's been very, very evident that um, no matter how much privilege we have, wealth as a society, technology, that this virus can still shut things down overnight. I mean, really shut down the world. And, Mm -hmm. um, So there's a good, that's true. That's the true thing about us. We are so creaturely. And so there's a, Mm. there's a truth in that, in the humility, humiliation of that. And yet it's been interesting to me that I don't feel like there's been appropriate kind of widespread lament, like grief. I was, I just said on a podcast the, the other day that, I mean, I remember after 9-11, there was a little moment. It didn't last long, but there was a little moment of kind of unity and grief um, where uh, everyone was sort of reeling and grieving. And then it, it, it devolved. But I don't feel like we even had that. I don't feel like there was ever kind of unified grief about about the lives lost, about the way the, that our economy was shut down this has fallen heavy on the poor um and that to some extent this is i and i certainly think this politically could have been handled differently but i think it it, to some extent like we can be united in our 
and and the fact mm-hmm. that we are deeply human and can't solve yeah. this, we can't yeah. fix yeah. mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, it was interesting to me. We just so quickly went to what is habitual in our country, which is blame, yeah. recrimination, polarization, anger. Mm-hmm. Um, that I feel I, I really, I mean. I think that we, when we're weak, when we're tired, when we're stressed, I see this in my own life, you mm-hmm. default to your, to your spiritual habits, right? Yeah. And America and our weariness and weakness defaulted into um, cruelty and, 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 um, and a lot of divisiveness and bitterness. And, and um, so... And distrust, mostly. Uh, so that's, I mean, if anything, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm sad that I felt like it could have been a moment of reckoning for the fact that we're creatures in a way that it wasn't. Now, hmm. speaking about the church specifically, um, I think there's two stories to tell here in one way. It's remarkable how many, I think it was something over 90% of churches with, with membership over 200, maybe over more than that, maybe 95, but it was very high, really almost overnight within a course of one or two weeks adapted and went online and figured Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. other ways, which is remarkable. And I feel like is not a story that was told well, because people so focused on the detractors from that, especially at the beginning, you know, the churches that continued to meet. Right. Yeah. But to think that 90% of churches in America just worshiped in a way that they have never worshiped before. And it happened in a matter of a couple of weeks. That's remarkable and shows an enormous amount of unity. Um, Now I think that that splintered as the time went on. I'm talking Mm. about last March. I think that started sort of falling Mm. apart as it got more and more, uh, ideological. Um, but in general, I'd say the churches that the, the things that the churches that I feel like did the best on this are ones that just acknowledge that things are not the way they are meant to be, that have a very robust notion of the fall and sin and mm-hmm. said, yeah, this is awful because mm-hmm. we weren't meant to live isolated because we had to respond to global death like this is not what we are created for this is not what the church this is not how the church will be for all of eternity right Right. this is not what we're made for Mm. so it became kind of a mantra in our house at the beginning like it feels wrong because it is wrong like this is we are partaking here of the of the reality of the fall um this isn't just how things have to be this isn't just a hiccup this is wrong yeah and, but the wrongness of death is why Jesus came into the world. And I don't just mean cessation of life. I mean, capital D death, the mm-hmm. darkness of sin, which is this pandemic is part of, you know? Yeah. So Christians that, that could recognize that, um, mm-hmm. I think was the best. The thing that troubled me the most with the church is I just feel like there was widespread. I saw this in Anglicanism. I saw this outside of it. Um, Everything is fine. I mean, just people, our Mm -hmm. default is so in pain to say, 
it's normal. We can make this right. Everything mm-hmm. is fine. You know, trying to sort of make everyone feel normal or mm-hmm. everything keep going the way it was. I, I, I just feel like the, the, the things that ended up the worst is when churches tried to make everything keep going the, the way it was. Either mm-hmm. what ended up happening is they just ignored their the larger CDC um, recommendations and it ended up being just a, it, it, I think that deeply harmed our witness to those outside of the church. Cause it seems mm-hmm. like we just don't care about our neighbors mm-hmm. or it was this like neither fish nor fell. Like there wasn't real, ad- mm-hmm. we just went online and then we never really adapted and it's months and months and months went on. And there was sort of no, it, we just, we, it was just sort of trying to keep things as normal as possible. Whereas the best, yeah. so the best things I found were when it was like, okay, this is not normal. Mm-hmm. So we're going to like, we are going to change, we're going to change stuff up. We're going to change how we do stuff. And so, I mean, we were talking about Sean McCain before. I, I actually think Sean did such a great job on this. Mm-hmm. I, it's a local example. I mean, that's my mm-hmm. church that I'm yeah. in. So yeah, in maybe I'm biased yeah. here. <laughs> and he did things that you couldn't do if you had a much, much larger church. I mean, it's yeah. not a giant church. So so, there, so because of that, it was more easily adaptable. Mm. And we are in Texas. But they've met in person throughout most of the pandemic. Not at the beginning. It was online for a while, but really since the summer. But they met outside with mm-hmm. masks mm-hmm. and social distancing. And so they brought the church entirely outside, um, mm-hmm. which was so there, so people continued to be able to meet, but it was right. weird, but it was better than nothing. And, right. um, and I love meeting outside. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be sad when <laughs> the pandemic's over, just not in any other way. I'll be rejoicing, <laughs> but just in that we yes. won't meet outside anymore as a church. I, um, yeah. So obviously, like the where I was in Pittsburgh, it would be really hard to do that because it's cold and rainy most of the year. But yeah, some of, yeah. anyway, all that to say, um, yeah. it's uh, I churches that said, okay, it's not going to be normal. It's not church isn't going to look like what it did before twenty twenty for this next year anyway. So yeah. let's be creative and adapt in the ways we can in ways that are deeply human, you know, can we get people in groups of four and that's it to meet in person outside? Can we connect people? Um, One of the things that our church did in Pittsburgh that I really loved is when they were able to welcome people back, they prioritized people who live alone Mm. with the recognition that this falls most heavily on people who live alone, um, the isolation of it. So all that to say, I think, um, the church, I I think there's a story to be told about how well the church did in some places mm-hmm. about this. Um, and yet I would just say in general going forward, I think as a culture, we, we one of the gifts that the church can bring is simply reminding people how to be human yeah. and that we are limited and that we yeah. are not made to be machines and we are not yeah. made to be God. Yeah. Um, and so embracing the reality of, of mortality of our death and of creaturely limits is, is this radical gift that the church 
has because it's not happening anywhere else really in culture. Yeah. yeah. It's the Ash Wednesday gift, you know, the yeah. prayer that, you know, Lent, Lent begins with a reminder that you're going to die. We're all going to die. So, yeah. 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 And I see that too, Tish, um, as kind of an application of, um, of what you said earlier about like h- how to provide space for people to own their doubts you know, and, and to talk about um, the things that they're wondering about. I, I see in some of this, like, I think what you're saying, the best response from churches, one of the things that churches can do is just create space. Don't try, don't try to pretend everything's fine. Uh, and don't just sort of go on with your normal church stuff. Just, you know, now it's all going to be digital. Right. But create space for people to lament and to mourn and to grapple and to doubt and to, you know, wonder where God is in the midst of this and to have new realizations that they, they couldn't have otherwise. And um, just to create space for people to actually just be where they're at and find God there yeah. uh, strikes me yeah. as something we're not very good at and something we could use a lot more of. Mm. So, um, Tish, I also think your book uh, helps us to do that um, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of help us, helps us inhabit these prayers in a way that um, allows us to meet God uh, in those moments. And so I'm really appreciative that you uh, spent some time with us today to talk about that. Um, really appreciate, yeah, really appreciate the time. Thanks. And, uh, being able to uh, be here with us. And thanks, Sandy, for uh, the wonderful questions. Um, again, the book is called Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. Um, Tish, let's do this again soon. Yeah, that would be fun. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.